I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New, New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. We're so happy to have you here on what is for us a very rainy, dreary day, but a good one nonetheless. Because we're here and we're recording with our mouths for your ears. Yeah, and we have a good one today. We're going to Vermont, which I'm sure is also probably rainy and dreary. Hopefully not on the day this episode comes out, but definitely on the day that we are recording this, as has been the theme for this winter so far. Yeah, it hasn't been super great. Although, I'll tell you right now, the weather's been interesting this week. In true New England fashion, as most of you know, if you're from New England, our weather has been, well, New England. This week we had a snowstorm, and then we had a rainstorm, because it went from, I don't know, freezing to then 50 degrees within three days, and then it got cold again, and then today we had another rain windstorm. So, yeah, I don't think global warming is real at all. (laughs) At all. Yeah, 50 degrees and raining with coastal floods in January is so normal. It's really normal here in Maine and New Hampshire. No big deal. But when we got snow, I don't know about you, Katie, but here in Portland, it, I got 14 inches. Really? Indeed. Wow. We got easily, easily 10 down in like the Dover, Seacoast, New Hampshire area. Which is a lot. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that less than two days later, it was gone. I know. I have like none left. There's only little piles where I had to shovel and you know the snowplow came. Yep. Because it rained and then it was 50 degrees the whole day. So it's gone. Yeah, I don't know, you guys. You're probably going to be underwater in the next 10 years, but at least we know how to swim. <laughs> at least I did at one time. I used to be able to, when I was a competitive swimmer, I used to be able to go the whole length of the pool, so 25 meters, and then a little more, like almost all the way back underwater without taking a breath. It's because I was a competitive swimmer. I could do it. It was something we did. We challenged ourselves. Now, as I have just recently recovered from a second round of COVID over Christmas, um, I can barely talk without coughing. So I don't even know if I can ever swim again. So when the time comes, y'all, I'm just going to let the water take me. (laughs) And that may be sooner than later. And that's okay. I'm giving your permission, Katie, right now to just give me like a Viking funeral. Put me on a boat, set me on fire, and just let me go. Only if I'm right on the next boat, we have to tie our two rafts together. That's fair. You set me on fire, I'll set you on fire, we just lay down and drift off. I think that's a fair trade. That's the only way we gotta do it. I think that's fair, and I think for the sake of our podcast, I can't see it any other way. (laughs) We die with True Crime New England. True Crime New England dies with us. Okay, true though? Well said. And on that terrible, terrible note, and on that awful segue, let's move on to something more positive briefly, and then to classically get bad again, like we do here. You guys know. George S. bought us two coffees after each of our past three episodes, so six in total. Thank you, George. George is single-handedly buying us Aroma Joe's. And Duncan's, and it's great, and you're a very kind man. Thank you, George. Thanks, George. And this case we have today was suggested to us by two lovely listeners, 
Jessica K via our Instagram DMs and Whitney B via our email. Jessica, Whitney, thank you so much. This is a really interesting case. Would have never found it on my own. So thank you for suggesting it. I think everyone should stick around because it's, it's just, it really is a classic, just true crime case that I feel like no other podcast will really just cover because it's run of the mill, but it's so messed up. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like even though we have pretty big sources, it's not a super huge case, which is, I don't know, I feel like this case would be a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. So I I do think it's important to get it out there. The girl that we talk about based on the title, obviously, Michelle Gardner Quinn was so lovely. She was a college student. She really was just so passionate about the environment, which we could kind of segue back to our intro about how the world is kind of going to shit and climate change is really screwing us over. Mm -hmm. Michelle Gardner Quinn was very, very passionate about that and just really loved everybody and everything, Mm -hmm. all living things. And we'll kind of talk about an essay that she wrote at the end Mm -hmm. about that. But yeah, she was a lovely, lovely girl. I feel like she would have been someone that would have been one of our friends. Oh yeah. Like all these cool clubs and at UVM, which Mm -hmm. is such a, a crunchy environmental <laughs> hippy cool dippy. I love it. Perfect for her. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, we recommend you guys stick around because it it's a good one. Yeah, it's important to be told. And without further ado, today we will be covering the, the murder, murder of, of Michelle Gardner Quinn. All right, Katie, what do you have for me for sources today? I have Wikipedia. Murderpedia, Findagrave, CrimeLibrary.org, The Connections Newspaper, NBC News, Telegram.com, and A Case Law. Nice. I myself had Murderpedia always, always, always. I used Telegram.com, CBS News, Crime Library, Foster's Daily Democrat, which has been a favorite of mine lately, NBC News, The State versus Rooney from Case Law, and Connection Newspapers as well. All right. What do you think, Katie? Should we uh, get started? Liz, would you do us the honors? I would. Thank you. It's very kind of you to actually offer that to me. <laughs> you. That's so sweet. I just... Oh, oh, my God. Okay. Well, let me give it a go. Let me tell you guys a little about someone who is no doubt extremely lovely and would have been a really good friend and advocate for what currently is obviously a global crisis in climate change. Michelle Gardner Quinn, who was born in Washington, D.C. in 1985, was a beautiful girl. She had a passionate attitude from a young age, and this was very obvious. She grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and was very active in school and in her community. She was described as many things, but all of them were positive. You literally could not find a single negative thing about her. Not that you really can anyway with victims, but there was more of an overwhelming number of just nice, genuine compliments about her and her personality. She was level-headed and bright. She was compassionate, sharp, and she had a strong desire to make the world a better place. And I have no doubt that she would have done that. Michelle, at the age of 21 decided to change colleges in her senior year. So in the fall of 2006, she found herself at the University of Vermont in Burlington. She was majoring, interestingly enough, it's a very interesting combo, but I love it, 
um, in Latin American studies and environmental studies. Double major, smart girl, because I know one thing, environmental studies are not easy. And Latin American studies, also not easy, because that's a lot of Spanish. And learning a new language is hard. Michelle had badly wanted to attend UVM because it was literally the perfect college to line up with her dreams and goals. And it did not take her long at all after transferring to UVM that she had found herself in so many different circles and successfully. She joined the Outdoors Club, the Feminist Club, and she also created and promoted awareness around the campus regarding global warming. And overall, at the time, it seemed like everything in Michelle's life was exactly as it should be. She was at the exact right school that she always wanted to go to. She was studying her favorite things, and she was doing things that she enjoyed. And this was all while she was quickly making friends. And she was making a home for herself. She loved her professors and her classes, and that doesn't happen very often. I liked my professors just fine, but to say you loved your classes isn't always true. Mm -hmm. I can't say I loved statistics, (laughs) because I did not. But... I think that's great for her. And I, once you're in like your senior year and you're studying what you want to study, that is the good life. Yeah. And that's a hard change too, to transfer somewhere for your senior year. Like you have to start over and just kind of, for her to have enmeshed herself so quickly into everything that she was passionate about Mm -hmm. and be successful and make friends. Yeah. That really says a lot about her character, her personality. Mm -hmm. She was very friendly and just seemed like, the kind of girl who would take in people who didn't have a group, you know, when the professor said, okay, break into groups and do this. And I really liked that idea of her. She seemed just very genuine. So Michelle had actually been at UVM for about six weeks when this terrible tragedy occurred. Just six weeks. And she already had, like, made a home for herself. And that's hard to do. Again, especially senior year transferring. You have a good point, Katie. So on October 6th, 2006, Michelle and two of her friends went out to dinner around Burlington and to a few bars. They were celebrating one of the friend's birthdays. And for whatever reason, Michelle had made plans to meet up with a different friend at a store on Main Street called the Ski Rack. So she separated from her friend group. This was pretty late in the evening. We're talking like 1 a.m., So they had been out, had their dinner, been out to the bars. And so they were just having a good time. And so she stepped aside and said, I'm going to go head out and I'm going to go hang out with my friend. It's unclear if she was going to grab the friend and come back to join this other friend group or if she and this friend were going to stay separated and do their own thing. We really don't know at this point. Either way, she was going to walk to this ski rack location on her own. And again, it was pretty late. But that's not super abnormal for a college student. And these locations were right near the dorms, so it wasn't super far. Michelle left her friends and walked to the store by herself. And when she got to the ski rack, she tried calling her friend but did not get any answer. And we know this just given later the friend and their phone records. She tried calling several times. The friend never answered for whatever reason. And then Michelle's phone died. This is back in the day. It was no doubt a flip phone. I have no doubt in my mind, and that's fine. But those things didn't really hold a super awesome charge. 
if it did, she probably hadn't charged it in like four days and it was like running on the end, you know? So there she was waiting in front of the ski rack without a working cell phone. And now she was alone. It's nearly 2 a.m. And she's waiting, hoping her friend just arrives like they said they would. Michelle borrowed a cell phone from a passerby to call this friend, but after a few tries, she still couldn't get in touch with them, and instead she decided to call a different friend. She got in touch with this person, they exchanged some words, everything was going okay, I think she just called him to let him know, hey, what's up, I couldn't find so-and-so, I'm outside of the ski rack, was supposed to meet her, can't find her, not here, my phone's dead, I'm fine. Yeah. Surveillance footage from a jewelry store on Main Street showed Michelle walking with the passerby, an older male who looked like he was in his 30s, at about 2.30 in the morning. The next day on October 7th, Michelle was reported missing when she never showed up for a meeting with her parents, who were up from Virginia visiting for parents' weekend. She was last seen earlier that morning, of course, walking back to her dorm room in Burlington after the night out with her friends. Mm -hmm. 21-year-old classmate and very good friend of Michelle's, Tommy Lang, reported that he was the friend that Michelle called and spoke to after she couldn't get a hold of the first friend. Mm -hmm. The two had actually grown up together in Virginia, and it would make sense that he was the one who she called. Right. They had grown up literally alongside each other. They were very, very good friends, mm -hmm. and it seemed like he was kind of her person. Yeah. You know, she had friends. She met them at school. It's just not the same when you're meeting someone for, and you've known them for a couple weeks yeah. versus your good friend that you've grown up alongside. So right. I really am not shocked that she called Tommy. Yeah. And Tommy stated, quote, she sounded completely fine and normal and exactly the way she did when she left us. There wasn't anything that made me worry or made me suspicious that anything was going on. Her tone of voice was normal. Everything was to be expected. She just kind of called him and said, hey, my phone died. What's up? I'm fine. Yeah. After Michelle's friends and family began getting concerned about where she was, they notified the police, and Tommy actually called the guy back from the phone number that was saved in his call log. I really think Tommy was an OG murderer, you know? Honestly. Because this guy, top-notch police work right there. That's a good... I would be a little anxious to do that, because it's a stranger, and I didn't know if it was a man, or maybe Michelle cl like clarified that, but mm, I don't know. It's a stranger that they have my number... I don't know, but he was brave and he did it. Yeah, and I think it helps that he was a dude, too, because if that were me, I'd be a little bit more like, ah, I don't know. But also in front of the police, too. Like, yeah, yeah you know, we can't find Michelle. And yeah, I talked to her last night and, oh, shit, she called me from this phone that she borrowed. Yeah. Oh, my God, I have the number. Let me call them. And the cops are like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, we'll take it down, take notes. Yeah. And Tommy said that. The, the man that he talked to was, first and foremost, a man. Right. And that he didn't really say anything. And he basically just said that he saw Michelle walking up the hill towards the dorms by herself. And that's about it. Like, implying that she got home safely. Yeah. So where the fuck is Michelle? And then Tommy was like, you know, with the police. And then all of a sudden he gets a phone call shortly after their conversation. And it's from this phone number. And the guy on the line is like, hey, you know what, man? This is my man voice. Hey, you know what, man? Maybe I do remember a little bit. You know, I was drinking, whatever. This is also me speculating, like, the exact words. But really, at the end of it, the man on the other line told him that he thought maybe 
Michelle like was going to call a cab or something. Very unclear. And Tommy said that he really didn't recall the man telling him a whole bunch. You know, it was kind of vague, which is kind of suspicious. So obviously a search went underway because clearly something was up. Maybe her friends initially thought, Maybe she went to her dorm, crashed, whatever. But once she didn't show up for parents weekend, it was real obvious and this was getting serious. So once searches went underway, the entire town of Burlington was scoured and wooded areas surrounding it were looked at and there was nothing to be found. Until six days later on October 13th, 2006, when some hikers found Michelle's half-dressed and beaten body 15 miles away at Huntington Gorge in Richmond, Vermont. Essentially, she had been stuffed into a crevice and then was covered with leaves and twigs. An autopsy was obviously immediately performed because this was not an accidental death. This was very suspicious. Uh, And it was discovered that Michelle had been strangled and also beaten with a blunt object about the head. It was also very evident that Michelle had been sexually assaulted immediately prior to death. At a press conference on October 13th, police announced to the public that Michelle's body had been found. This same day, police arrested 36-year-old Brian L. Rooney on separate, unrelated charges. Brian was a construction worker with several prior arrests, and he was arrested on charges for sexual assault and lewd contact with a child in Caledonia County, Vermont, which is atrocious. Yeah, and my theory when I was reading all this was thinking, okay, they had an idea that this man was involved because they had his phone number, they probably linked it to him at this point, and they needed to nail him on something. And they couldn't nail him quite yet with Michelle's body because they didn't have any DNA evidence quite yet. So they looked into his history, whatever, they found some stuff, and they were like, let's arrest him on something we can get him for hold him, and then once we get the evidence back that's not circumstantial, we can arrest him and have him already in our custody. That was my thought. Yep. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Especially with his other crimes. Oh. Oh my god. Some of his other past charges included lewd and lascivious conduct with a minor in Essex County, Vermont, sexual assault of a minor, sexual assault of an 18-year-old female after shoving an ether-soaked rag over her face to make her lose consciousness, Mm. as well as federal charges back in 1998. Mm. A lot of the charges occurred over 80 miles from Burlington, and Brian once lived in Gilman, Vermont, over 100 miles from Burlington. Mm-hmm. Brian's former girlfriend also said that he had threatened to kill her multiple times. He also had three separate children with three separate women, which is very disturbing. Not that he has three separate baby mamas, no. but that he has three children. Like, a man who is a criminal towards minors has kids of his own. Right. Even though Brian was arrested on separate charges, and these charges specifically were not in relation to Michelle's murder... It was revealed that he was the last person to see Michelle and that when Tommy called back the number of the man who let Michelle use his phone, it was Brian. Right. And police are like, oh, who is this now? Took down the number, found out it was Brian, looked into his history, were like, oh, shit. Arrested him on charges they could arrest him for mm-hmm. and then started the investigation on his connection to Michelle's murder. And the more they dug into this man, oh my god, I was reading some of these things and I was like, yeah, so it was him, 
It's him. Okay. Because he had, I don't know if you saw this, Katie, but there was so many things. An ex-wife who said that they were married like six months. And he, I imagine it was very torturous for that six month period. But basically she couldn't leave Brian and then she finally was able to, but she was so afraid to leave him, which is so happens so often as we know. Um, but she claimed that her husband often drugged her. That was his main, you know, method, which checks out with the thing you just said about the cloth in that girl's face. And this ex-wife said that he would often do this so that he could rape her, <gasps> which, um, hello, Michelle's body was sexually assaulted. And then what we know from what you just said, Katie. Also, apparently this ex-wife said, and this is an official like affidavit, like it's official on the record. Apparently, Brian also threatened to kill this woman on more than one occasion and is quoted in this affidavit as saying, quote, if you keep this up, I will bash your head in. Which, if you remember, guys, the autopsy report showed she had some blunt force injury to her head. Crazy. And also he threatened to uh, hurt her, kill her if she ever left with their daughter that they shared. Which, again, how does he have children? How is he able to procreate? This man is a monster. Also, I discovered in my research that he once tried to hire a hitman to kill one of his ex-girlfriends. What? First of all, anyone who tries and do that is literally an idiot because that never works. It's always going to be a cop or somebody who just is going to take your money. So don't even try. Like, stop. It's You're going to go through nine candidates before you get to one <laughs> and it's not going to work. But... That's serious. Yeah. This guy is more than capable of killing a young woman and hiding her body in a gorge. Oh, God. Terrible. Police also came to the conclusion after speaking with a lot of Brian's family members and friends, and they told them, wow, it's so weird that you're looking into that case where the girl's body was found in Huntington Gorge. Brian lives five miles away from Huntington Gorge and frequents the area. Hmm. He goes on his weird loner walks and I go on walks by myself. I go on hikes by myself, whatever. When he's doing it, it's weird. (laughs) Okay. You know that he's up there mumbling to himself and Mm -hmm. pacing and no one likes me and I can't get a girlfriend and women. Yes. He's, he's, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I just know he probably has like something in his pocket that could hurt someone if he needed to. And plus Katie, you don't have prior convictions of sexual assault and being a predator. Like, you know, like you're fine, but you're right. Like something about him walking in the woods by himself is very creepy. He kind of reminds me of the bridge guy from the Delphi murder case. I picture him wearing like a newsboy cap for some reason. I don't know why there's no pictures of him in a newsboy cap. But he gives me that, like, dirty, like, pockmarked, kind of just greasy man vibe where he's up to no good always. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to know his history to know that he could have some evil in him. Correct. And he does. So just several days after Michelle was reported missing, Brian was seen in a local business with cuts on his hand that would suggest defensive wounds, hmm. as if someone or something had been fighting back against him, perhaps. Oh, like a kitty cat. Oh, no, you mean a person. That's like the most common 
response to that is, oh, this is from my cat. All the time. It's like, have you seen what a cat scratch looks like? <laughs> it's thin, kind of rugged. No, 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 no. This is, you know, human nails are very different. Twelve days after his arrest on the unrelated charges, on October 25th, police put out an announcement that they had charged Brian with the aggravated assault and the murder of Michelle Gardner Quinn. That little greasy, skeevy asshole pled not guilty. Oh, I believe him. Obviously, right from the start, this case had gained extreme popularity in the media. It was a beautiful young woman in the community, and it was kind of shocking and rare for something like this to happen in such a safe, quiet state. As you guys know, it's like kind of our whole mantra. But seriously, like it was shocking. And so to keep it as appropriate and fair as possible, the trial was moved 70 miles away to Rutland, Vermont, hoping that the jury pool could be less biased, which again, great. We love a fair trial because we want this guy to be convicted. That's the only reason they do it, because they want it to be as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. Any little thing could be fucked. Yeah, and he even told the detective after he was arrested for Michelle's murder, he, like, gestured to a detective and pulled him aside and stated, quote, I honestly don't know what I did that night. If I did it, I deserve to die. So that's, like, really guilty sounding. Absolutely. Like a cop-out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Is he trying to claim that, like, oh, I was drunk. I wasn't myself. Because that's a bad defense and it's not going to hold up in court, buddy. Yeah. Or the whole thing where people are like, oh, I, I blacked out. I just get so angry and passionate that I black out and I don't remember what happened. No. Boo. Yeah, boo. Tomato, tomato, tomato. That's not how it works, buddy. Sorry. At a following press hearing, Brian's lawyer did a little oopsie-daisy and accidentally revealed confidential information about DNA evidence, which then forced the trial to go under lock and key. Oh, dang. Sounds like a really good lawyer. <laughs> Man, maybe he had stage fright? Jeez, or maybe it was, his first, it was his first trial? Every lawyer has a first trial. True, true. Poor Brian for this being... His lawyer's first one. <laughs> I made that up. I don't know if that's true, but that's a big whoopsie daisy. Yeah. To make, like, for real. Yeah. That can jeopardize everything. And not even just for the defense team, but also for the prosecution. You could have everything thrown away. You could have certain evidence thrown away. You could have a new jury pool have to be selected. You have to be really careful. So, yikes. Right. Meanwhile, people of the town, especially in Burlington, are like, sharpening their pitchforks and readying their torches. Right. Because they're all amongst themselves realizing if this guy is responsible, which, um, hello, everyone knows that he is, right. Vermont doesn't have a death penalty. Yeah. So everyone was like, burn him! We're gonna stab it! Like, everyone yeah. was just really getting, getting very, very fired up. Yeah. And for good reason, because a young college student, a member of their community, a beloved member of their community, right. was just murdered, kidnapped, Dragged to a gorge, yeah. sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. beaten, and then had her half-dressed body shoved in a crevice. Like, and this shit doesn't happen in Vermont. Yeah, no. So that's also why everyone was really, really upset because they were just shocked. Mm -hmm. They were devastated. And then yeah. they were also really afraid. Like, yeah. if this happened to someone like Michelle, who's the salt of the earth. Literally. 
what else could happen or what else has happened that we don't know about. Exactly. Yeah, well said. That being said, once this trial happened, it was largely based on one thing, DNA evidence, which is good because that's a solid physical thing. A lot of times, as most of you guys know, if you're into true crime, circumstantial evidence just won't cut it. It does a lot. Like, you know, it's like, okay, here's, look at all these things. Like, here's the the big picture. Like, duh. But here's the one thing to nail it down. Mm-hmm. DNA in this case, which is a great thing. I'm so happy with the technology advancements this world has made because damn. Now this guy, my God, he is, have we said he's stupid yet? Because he is. Um, but he wasn't, uh, really careful like he should have been. Not that I'm giving him advice, but he was a little sloppy. Obviously we covered the circumstantial evidence, the surveillance footage, the phone calls from his phone, him calling Tommy back to say, oh, I think she might have called cab, but I don't know. But then at the trial, it was revealed after the lawyer made the little whoopsie daisy. There was, in fact, DNA evidence, and it totally nailed Brian to the crime. And I think once the defense realized that, as we can kind of tell in a few minutes with their defense, they realized that they were absolutely screwed. Mm -hmm. So, so, so screwed. The state immediately dropped a massive bombshell at Brian's trial. They presented a rectal swab which was taken from the body that had sperm matching Brian's DNA on it. Brian's DNA had been taken as mandated by the court shortly after his arrest on the unrelated sex crimes. Betty didn't think that molesting a child would get him here, buddy. Stupid idiot boy. So yeah, he's standing here on trial for murder and they have his DNA. They have this DNA from Michelle's body And wouldn't you know it, it matches. Marsha LaFountain, a forensic scientist at the lab who worked on the case, had testified that the results of the DNA profiling indicated that the probability of randomly selecting an unrelated individual in the general population whose DNA matched the sample from the semen collected from Michelle's body, as well as the DNA sample taken from Brian, was approximately 1 in 240 quadrillion. That is literally a number a six-year-old makes up when they say, how high can you count? I can count to 240 quadrillion. (laughs) Like, it's insane. There's no chance anything else could have been the owner of this DNA. Like, it's not possible. It's it's Brian. Yeah, it's Brian. And Brian's lawyer tried to attempt to argue that the DNA evidence was, quote, two nanograms of sperm and that it was handled by a forensic lab with a history of sloppy work. He also tried to say that because of this, they shouldn't consider this as having enough evidence to convict Brian. Unreal. Stupid. You can't argue with DNA. No, I just, you can't. And not... Not these days, okay? And that includes 2006, 2008, I think, when this trial happened. Because, come on, science is science. And you can argue all day long about the amount of sperm, the amount of this, that. But you don't need very much to confirm anything. And with DNA, it's so small 
that even that small amount can prove just enough. When you zoom in with a microscope, there's a huge section of DNA in there. And when it matches so perfectly, you know, like 1 in 240 quadrillion perfectly, come on, man. You're fucked. Sorry. (laughs) Hate to say it, but (laughs) bye-bye. So yeah, the state was like, okay, sure. I get it. Doesn't seem like a lot of DNA. You're right. But here's the thing. The procedures done in the lab were up to code. And they were done with full quality assurance. And they are done like that always. Doesn't matter if it's a murder case, a hit and run case, a sexual assault case. Doesn't matter. It's all done up to code by trained professionals. Doesn't matter if the sample is one nanogram or an entire pile of sploosh doesn't matter and the defense is kind of like a just last ditch let's just try it out for funsies they were like um here's some evidence to show that there were some mistakes made in this lab you know like dna mistakes and uh you know they've bumbled some other things before you know no big deal yeah that didn't work even a little the jury was not having it at that point the jury was like Mm -hmm. can we just move like i'm hungry I'm tired. This has been weeks. This guy is so guilt. Look at him. Just look at him. You know, like it was so obvious. Just by the DNA evidence, by the circumstantial evidence. I know in a court of law, legally, the circumstantial evidence doesn't hold as much weight. But in a jury, I feel like if I was a jury member, I'd be like, uh, hello? Like, that's a big deal to, to me. Right. He was the last person to see Michelle. Mm-hmm. Michelle's friend Tommy, who she spoke to on the man's borrowed phone, called the borrowed phone back, and guess who was on the other end? Brian, who was here before us in court. Hmm. Hmm. Peculiar. Duh. On October 17th, 2008, just shy of two years after his arrest for the murder of Michelle Gardner Quinn, Brian was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Per Vermont law, this was the only available sentence for aggravated murder. At the sentence hearing, Judge Michael Cuppersmith stated, quote, you are the lowest of the low. Good. He is. Accurate. Of course, though, don't worry, guys. Brian was like, I'm innocent of all charges. And he very bravely, to the faces of Michelle's loved ones, said, quote, I'm sorry for what you're going through, but I am not the man responsible for this tragic event, and it saddens me to have to tell you that. What a dick. Lying right to their faces, they're grieving. Their daughter was brutally murdered, and he's like, it wasn't me. Sorry. It's awful. I hate that these men, mostly men, say this to these victims' families, to their faces. Like, how can you live with yourself? Like, across the board, A. But seriously, like the jig is up. This is your sentencing hearing. You are going away for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you can't even take a fraction of some kind of accountability. No, it's too hard for men. And sometimes women who are very guilty of very bad crimes. And after his sentencing, he literally immediately fired his lawyer like a little pussy bitch. And this was in an effort to boycott his sentencing. And he later sent a letter to the court claiming he was, quote, a victim of a public and judicial lynching, which 
Mm, does he know what lynching means? Because I think you have to be a different race for that. Thank you. I was just going to say he's the whitest of the white, greasy fucker from Vermont. Yeah. And then, here, get this. His lawyer that he fired later made a statement that basically said, in not, you know, in more words, that he believed that Brian was one of the few clients out of thousands he had represented in over 20 years of criminal defense where he thought there was no hope. <laughs> oh, shit. Isn't that bad? <laughs> so bad. At the sentencing hearing, actually, Michelle's mom, Diane Gardner Quinn, took the stand and told the judge and jury what it was like to have to go through the morgue to identify her daughter's beaten body. <laughs> Later, she stated, quote, There are some people that are so bound in evil, so choked by evil, that they cannot change. And for these people, I feel the death penalty is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Powerful. So obviously, like most of these guys do, Brian naturally tried to appeal his sentencing. And to also no one's surprise, he was unsuccessful because he murdered someone. He claimed that the state failed to prove that Michelle's death occurred at the time of her rape, which is apparently a requirement for the charge of aggravated murder, which is what he was charged with. However, in February of 2011, the Vermont Supreme Court told Brian to shut the fuck up and that his trial was 100% by the books and that his sentence remained in place. Sorry. Although, nice try. Like, I don't... You did your research, I think. I don't... (laughs) Womp womp. Brian obviously remains incarcerated to this day, although some sources I found said that he was at the Southern State Correctional Facility in Springfield, Vermont, and some sources said he was at a prison in Kentucky. Hmm. Regardless, bye! Yeah, bye! The nonprofit organization Michelle's Earth Foundation was founded in Michelle's memory, and the organization works to promote the involvement of youth in environmental protection and helps raise awareness about environmental issues, which was something that Michelle was so passionate about. I love it. You can learn more about this organization at michellesearth.org. Her parents also created a scholarship in her name at the University of Vermont. Love it. At a later memorial service, Michelle's brother gave a very powerful speech where he stated that his sister was, quote, a sharp, compassionate, globe-trotting adult. It's one thing to have ideals and beliefs and another to act on them. You knew yourself, Michelle, and knew what you wanted to do. You were so complete. You are so complete. Oh. An essay called A Reverence for All Life that Michelle wrote just days before she was abducted was featured at live concerts on the radio and has since been published in the book This I Believe Too, More Personal Philosophies of Remarkable Men and Women. Oh. In her essay, she wrote, quote, My connection to all life forms prevents me from sitting back and watching this catastrophe. It is absolutely horrific and so sick and twisted that a girl who found so much beauty and love in all life had her life taken by someone who has no respect at all for any life. Yeah. That's powerful. Wow, well said. And that is the horrible murder of wonderful, beautiful, very kind and passionate Michelle Gardner Quinn. Guys, we want to know what you think. Always tell us your thoughts and your feelings about this horribly sad case. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimeny. Oh, lowercase. And you can send us an email with your thoughts and feelings on this case or others that we've covered at our email, truecrimeny at gmail.com. 
We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our handy dandy submission tool under our contact page. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you so choose, or you can use the above methods that Liz just suggested as well. But you can get a hold of us that way. You can send us questions, comments, concerns, suggestions for other cases you'd like to hear us cover. And yeah, you can scroll a little further down, click our buy us a coffee button that says thank you and buy us a coffee. Well, myself a coffee, Liz a non-coffee related beverageino. But like we always say, you do not have to spend a single cent on us. You guys just being here and listening, especially for the cases that we cover like the one today, that is just really not super well known, even though it sounds like it should be very well known. Right. And yeah, just kind of listening and hearing us get these cases out there. We could not thank you more. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.